If you would, please join me in praying before we look to God's word. Father, what an incredible text we have here. These words have shaped and inspired your people for many centuries now, and we pray they would do the same this morning. In this passage, we see a powerful insight into one of the great spiritual mysteries of the Christian faith. It's the glory and the sanctity, even, of suffering and how it is that we can endure it with joy. And so we pray, God, that you give us eyes to see the answers to these things. But more than that, that you would empower us to truly believe and to live these words in our daily lives. In all of our sufferings, whatever they may be, would you be honored in them as we seek to endure them with joy? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine uh, virtually every detail of your life going terribly wrong. For some of you, I'm sure it it feels like you're actually living through this right now even. Uh, Just like that, a loved one you never imagined losing is now gone. Uh, For months and months now, you've been suffering uh, through some kind of crippling chronic pain. Uh, For years and years, you've longed for a spouse or a child with no end to your waiting in sight. For decades, you've been struggling to build your wealth back up after having lost it all. Whatever the case may be, I want you to imagine you are faced with the exact kind of suffering you fear the most. And then imagine if, in the midst of all of this, what you felt in your heart more than anything else was joy. Is it even possible to experience a joy like this, or is this all just a bunch of happy religious talk? Uh, would it, what would it take, rather, for us to view suffering in this way as if it could be a grace from God of all things? What would need to change for us to experience, of all things, joy in the midst of our suffering? That is what Paul seems to be after in our passage today, and my sense is that his answers to these things changes everything. Last week, Paul opened this letter by celebrating his relationship with this Philippian church. They had shared together in this upward life in Christ, as we've put it, and he prayed that this church would continue sharing in this upward life with him, even in spite of his suffering. He was thrown in prison. He prays that they would press on with him, that they would see his imprisonment as a way of, again, sharing in the grace of God, not just as a crisis that needs to be managed or averted. Well, in our passage today, Paul shares a report of his missionary activity. He begins in verse 12 by saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, namely his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. And then he shares a number of ways in which that's true how it served to advance the gospel. And remember, Paul was writing this letter as a thank you to this church. 
The Philippian church had heard that he was in prison, and they had sent likely their pastor to encourage and to support him. And I'm sure, I can imagine, the the idea behind that visit and that encouragement was basically, listen, Paul, I'm so sorry, this is terrible. This is horrible. We love you. We're here to help you, right? It's perfectly reasonable. But here, Paul's trying to persuade them that, no, 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 this is a good thing. That this is all part of sharing in the upward life of Christ. It's not a barrier to sharing in it. He even mentions on two separate occasions here that he rejoices in his imprisonment and the many good things that come as a result of it. But how in the world can Paul do a thing like this? This is the question I want us to approach this passage with in our minds. How can Paul rejoice in his suffering? as if it is a good thing. There must be something different about this man. Uh, He must understand something or know something that most people just do not. And the truth is, I think he does. And in this passage, he brings us into this secret of his. In this passage, it is as if Paul sort of picks up the hood on his inner life, if you will, to show us what is driving his joy in the midst of this suffering and trial. And he does this, he makes this argument in two parts, we're going to see. And I think when we put these two parts together, it's when we're going to start to see, okay, this is how it works. This is how we can endure suffering with joy. So first, in verses 12 to 18, Paul argues this. He argues that proclaiming Christ is greater than being free. Proclaiming Christ is more important than freedom. Look with me at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now remember, when when Paul was talking here about the the gospel being advanced, what he means is he's talking about this good news that by rising from the dead, Jesus has conquered sin, and he now reigns as the king of all things in heaven. The king of heaven, the king of earth, the king of all creation. Now that, again, is an inherently political message. That means Christ is king. He is sovereign over all things in heaven and on earth, including Caesar and his Roman Empire. This is, what, this is why Paul regularly found himself in prison. As we said last week, the gospel he preached was often seen as a threat to earthly rulers. But ironically, the fact that they threw him in prison in this way actually worked to his advantage. Uh, because the word was getting out, it says, through the entire imperial guard. This is, this is more than likely the Roman Empire's most elite military, the military closest associated with the emperor himself. These, the word was getting out among them and everyone else that he was in prison for preaching that Christ was this king of all of creation. So their punishment was sort of backfiring, right? It was kind of giving a platform to the very message they were punishing him for preaching, Word was spreading. And not only did Paul's imprisonment help his ministry, it also emboldened the ministry of others. It's almost as if Paul was sort of ripping the Band-Aid off for everybody else, right? 
As in, okay, I, you know, I guess the cat's out of the bag here. Look, there's no, no avoiding this kind of suffering and persecution. Like everybody, we might as well just open our mouths and make Christ known. You see this? So, so the powers that be were becoming aware of Christ and his gospel through Paul's imprisonment. Other brothers were becoming confident, speaking the word with more boldness and less fear. And then on top of all that, still more people were hearing about Christ through Paul's opponents, his detractors. Look with me at verse 15. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. On to 17. He says, the former, those who do it from envy and rivalry, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. In other words, they didn't have the same aim or the same goal in mind that Paul had. They had a different aim and a different goal. Namely, Paul even says here, thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. Now, there is some debate as to which opponents Paul is talking about here and therefore what this precisely means. Uh, it could be that he actually even references different kinds of opponents throughout this letter. It's not entirely clear, so we have to have a loose hand a little bit with this, but certainly we know one of Paul's strongest opponents were those whom he called the Judaizers. And we read about them quite a bit in our series through Galatians, not entirely long ago. These were Jews who professed faith in Christ, but demanded that Gentiles, non-Jews, be circumcised in order to join God's family. If you remember that series in Galatians, we talked about them welcoming Gentiles into the wrong family in the wrong way, okay? They wanted these Gentile believers to be circumcised. They wanted them to become citizens of the nation of Israel. Meanwhile, whereas Paul wanted them to repent and believe and be baptized into the church of Jesus Christ, which is made up of redeemed sinners from among all nations. It's not just tied to the nation of Israel. You see this? So this was a problem for a few reasons. First, it undermined the central claim of the gospel message, namely that all people are justified and forgiven of their sins by grace alone, not by their obedience to ritual or Old Testament law or their citizenship in an earthly nation even. It also elevated ethnic Jews who had already been circumcised to this sort of elite status in the church. So this was the tension in Paul's day with one of his primary opponents, the Judaizers. And in one sense, these Judaizers did believe in Jesus, more than likely, and proclaim him. And yet, on the other hand, they were very opposed to Paul's gospel. See this? Especially to its ethnic and its cultural implications. Because Paul's gospel put people of all nations on an equal footing before, in their mind, their God. The God of Israel. So here's the point. Since the nation of Israel was also sort of a known commodity in the world, since they had a fairly friendly relationship even with the Roman Empire, this made the gospel of the Judaizers much less controversial than Paul's gospel because their gospel was not so much a threat to Caesar. He kind of knew about Judaism. This is sort of a new strain of that old religion. Paul's gospel, on the other hand, was very different. He was very explicit that disciples were citizens of a heavenly kingdom, more so and before the fact they were citizens of the Roman Empire. Now, to me, it seems like these were probably the men who were preaching Christ in this way in order to afflict Paul. He's probably, I think, talking about the Judaizers, mostly because of what he will say later in this book in chapter 3. If you look at the screen with me, Paul writes this. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is 
probably a crude reference to the practice of circumcision. Paul does this. Remember in Galatians, he said, I wish they would just emasculate themselves, right? This is kind of how he talks about these guys, okay? He says, for we are the circumcision, not just those who are circumcised in the flesh, right? But we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put how much confidence in the flesh? None. No confidence in our earthly life, all the confidence in his upward life. This is the idea. So to some extent, it seems like Paul's opponents in Philippians were concerned with who was the circumcision and who wasn't and what circumcision meant. Chances are, by preaching their more palatable, less heavenly gospel, they made Paul and his gospel look even more radical, even more threatening, and even less credible, which led to affliction, which led to his imprisonment. Turned up the heat for Paul. But even still, notice Paul's assessment of all this chatter. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Do you see this? Across all these details, in light of everything that took place of his as a result of his imprisonment, one thing is clear, one thing is consistent. In Paul's mind, proclaiming Christ is greater than being free. If he had to be imprisoned so that Christ could be made known through all these different complicated means, well, great, sign him up, throw away the key. For Paul, his freedom and his liberties were not ultimate. Proclaiming Christ was ultimate. Defending the gospel was ultimate. Boldly speaking the word without fear, that was ultimate. Whether in pretense or in truth, whatever it took for Christ to be made known, that was ultimate. And therefore, since the proclamation of Christ was so big in Paul's mind, his earthly comforts, his personal freedoms, in turn, became much smaller uh, than they are for most. Next, in, in verses 18 to 26, he takes this argument even a step further. He doubles down. He zooms out and he says, in fact, honoring Christ is greater than staying alive. Honoring Christ is greater than staying alive. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, in other words, through this upward life that we share in, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, listen carefully, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In other words, I'm not quite sure which one it'll be, life or death. In some ways it doesn't really matter as long as Christ is honored. For me, Paul continues, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I want you to notice Paul's ambivalence toward his life. As if, yeah, you know, he could kind of take it or leave it, right? He reduces his entire life down to what he just calls here his body. As in, this old thing. This flesh, these bones, whatever. 
long as Christ is honored, it doesn't really matter if they go on living or they die. For Paul, living was all about Christ, and dying meant gaining Christ. And this is exactly what he says next. He says, if I am to continue in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. This is what Paul meant when he said to live is Christ. He meant, well, as long as I'm still alive down here, I guess that means I keep working hard to preach the gospel and to defend it. I don't know. Sounds fine to me. And then he continues, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. It's tough, you guys. I don't know. Again, the ambivalence. (laughs) This is his life he's talking about. This man sincerely did not care if he lived to see another day. And this is not in some dark or inward sort of way, and it's not that at all. It's that he had discovered something more important than his life. He had discovered the joy and the priority of honoring Christ and his life. And toward the end, he, he sort of relents. He gives in. He, he tips his hand. He says, well, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, right? J- just to be clear, I, I guess I do have a preference, you know. Uh, and, and by the way, it's not really even close. This one's far better. But to remain in the flesh, he says, is more necessary on your account. Again, the ambivalence. Okay, you know, if you guys could still use my help, then sure. I guess I'll stick around a little longer. Notice for Paul, helping others to glory in Christ is very well worth staying alive. But if it weren't for that, it'd be better to depart and be with Christ. Furthering his career was not ultimate to him. Living to see tomorrow was not ultimate to him. Church, honoring Christ and helping others to glory in Christ, this was ultimate. And so do you see his claim coming into focus, right? In these verses, Paul is arguing, quite simply, that Christ's life matters more than ours. This is the key. Church, this is how he was able to rejoice even when his life was in utter ruins. It's because his life did not matter nearly as much to him as Christ's. And this is what we need to understand if we want to endure suffering in this same way. If, like Paul, we truly believe that Christ's life matters more than ours, we will be able to suffer in this life with joy because our life is not the life that matters most. It's Christ's life. Now, in light of all this, uh, if that claim is true, And if this is, in fact, the key to suffering with joy, let's just consider why might we struggle to rejoice in our suffering? I think just looking at this passage, it's not hard to point out two ways in which we might struggle, two things that might prevent us from from rejoicing in our suffering. The first one is this. First, we will struggle to rejoice in our suffering if our lives matter too much to us if our lives matter too much to us. How would you feel if your life was ground to a halt and you were thrown in prison tomorrow? Just think of all the things you're planning to do this week. Even this month, this year. I don't know if she's here, but Mary Dagfall, she's getting married in a month. She can't go to prison, right? 
Michelle and Eddie, they just had a son. They can't go to prison. Raul and Alicia LaFontaine, they just had a grandson. Come on, this, is, this stuff is important. They can't go to prison. Think of all the people we love. Think of the projects we have to do at work. Think of the remodeling we want to do in our homes. The vacations we have planned and scheduled. The comforts of our home, our bed, everything. Really, how would we feel if all these things were stripped from us and we had nothing to do but to sit there in a cell for who knows how long? I can tell you sometimes I have to fight back anger and anxiety when it takes an extra five or ten minutes to get home. There's a good chance I'd be a mess in this circumstance. But this, the, the point is this. Here's why. I'm sure we can all relate to this. It's because my life really matters to me. I tend to think that I really matter. That, that my story and my situation, it's a very important part of what's going on down here on planet Earth. Frankly, it may be that often my life matters too much. To me. Now, I have to imagine if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're just here kind of checking this whole thing out and you're listening to me say this, you might be thinking, what in the world is this guy talking about? Right? If we look for some kind of religion or faith today, we usually look for one that boosts our self-esteem, one that maximizes and optimizes our earthly lives, right? This is what everyone wants. And the truth is, yes, it is what most people want. But the message of the biblical Christianity is the exact opposite. It really is. According to biblical Christianity, one of our greatest problems is that we care too much about our life, not too little. And this is why Jesus says to the rich young ruler who had everything, okay, you seem to be doing great. Here's what you need to do. Sell it all. Give it up. Give it away to the poor. Come follow me. And when Jesus says this, it says he was disheartened and he went away sorrowful. Notice he wasn't emboldened to go and preach this message of Christ without fear. He was defeated by the message of Christ. Why? It's because his life mattered too much to him. It's because he refused to let it all go in order to gain Christ and be found in him. To this man selling all his stuff, that just sounds like suffering. And he's important. He has no business doing that. You see this? Now, this does not mean that the solution to all of our suffering is self-loathing or self-hatred. Please don't hear me saying that. That's not at all the message. It's not that none of us matter, like at all. That's not what I'm saying. It's that we've found a better way for our lives to actually matter. And that is namely by making them all about this crucified Messiah and his resurrected life. And really, there is an incredible utility to caring less about our lives and more about his. It makes this life in the flesh much better, I have to say, because we don't have to keep fighting and clawing to prove our self-importance, to let everyone know how important we are and why our life matters so much. We can actually, when we live this way, we can lose people's respect. We can be slandered even by people close to us. And it's fine. We can not succeed in some really important way. And it may be hard, but it'll be okay. If Jesus' life matters more, then we can endure tremendous loss. 
tremendous pain even, without losing hope. In fact, this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. In biblical Christianity, suffering is actually sacred. It's sacred. It's not just a philosophical problem out there in the world that we have to untangle, the problem of suffering. No, it's a path to eternal life and victory over our real existential problem, which is actually our sin. We hate God, and we resist his authority every chance we can. The Bible's, this is the Bible's answer, by the way, to the age-old problem of evil and suffering. Uh, it, it basically, what it does is it flips the question on its head. Because of Jesus, the question is no longer, why would God allow suffering? Because of Jesus, the more real and pressing question is this, why would God endure suffering? Why would he, of all things, come down here, take on human flesh to participate in wicked, heinous suffering? That's strange. And the answer is, of course, so that he can conquer all of our sin and suffering and offer us a new kind of life that's free from both. This is the kind of God we're talking about when we ask this question of the problem of suffering. This is his relationship to suffering. He is the chief sufferer. And now, as a result, the question's kind of turned back to us. Will we cherish this resurrected son of God and his eternal life that God has used to accomplish this great redemption? Or will we keep clinging to our lives as if no one else's could possibly be more important? Later today, I'm going to teach our students a bit on on baptism, and then next week, we're actually going to be baptizing five new brothers and sisters into the life of our church. Really looking forward to both, but here's a little preview of what's to come. Friends, this is what baptism is all about, this message here, about the sanctity of suffering. To be baptized is to say Christ's life now means more to me than mine. That's why I'm letting you dip my body beneath the water and raise it up. If I am, I'm officially giving up hope, that is, of finding my satisfaction in this life. If I have to suffer from this point on for his sake, so be it, because I'm not living for me anymore. I'm living for this crucified Christ alongside of his suffering people now. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Church, if we want to experience this upward life of Christ together, we have to let go of our death grip on the bodily lives we have here and now. Uh, If we want to be raised with him to eternal life, then we have to join him in suffering and be united with him in his death. And so here is maybe the greatest threat to experiencing the upward life. It is caring too much about our earthly one. Could it be that this is why we lack the courage to actually do evangelism? Could it be that this is why we speak so passionately about so many things, politics, culture, whatever it is, but not about Christ? Could, could it be that this is why Christians are tempted so often to compromise even some of the most basic truth claims of Scripture? Could it be that we care too much about our earthly lives and know that if we preach this message clearly enough, it more than likely will make them more challenging? 
Let's go back to this hypothetical scenario of us being thrown in prison. Imagine standing at this fork in the road of your life. To go this way would mean that your life unfolds according to your plans. You don't go to prison. You're free. You have all your family, all your friends. You get all your projects done, your vacations, but your life does not honor Christ. Or maybe we go this way, the path of suffering. We wind up in prison, unsure if we'll ever be free again, but our lives do honor Christ. Which path would we choose? I suppose it depends, right? Depends on whose life is most important. If it's ours or if it's his, we will never be able to rejoice in suffering if our earthly life matters too much to us. Next, uh, we will also struggle to rejoice in our suffering if, number two, Christ's life matters too little to us. When you hear about this gospel being proclaimed, disciples being made, churches being multiplied, when you think about missionaries being sent, pastors being trained, deacons and elders serving together and members being equipped for ministry, uh, what kind of emotional response does this elicit? in you, all this fruitful labor that we talk about? What do these things do in your hearts? Do we really care about these things with the passion of Paul here, or could we sort of take or leave them? I, mean, I don't know. I'm not even a leader here. I'm just, I'm a member. You know, somebody else can figure all that stuff out. I just want, I'm looking for a place to worship on Sunday mornings, maybe make a couple friends. I'll be good. In, in other words, does continuing on in the flesh mean fruitful labor for you? And if not, if, if the mission of our church is sort of a peripheral kind of an ornament to your life rather than even something central to your life, could it be that we need to at least take a good long look at our love for Christ? Can followers of Jesus truly say, I am at the same time dead to my sin and alive in Christ alone, but not particularly concerned about boldly proclaiming that truth to anyone else? Not particularly concerned about others sharing in this upward life with me. That sounds exhausting. Or, or churches being built. No, that's, that I have a better things to do. Or the gospel being defended in the world. If this is the case, can we really say that Christ's life matters more to us than ours? Not to mention, if our passion for Jesus is, is this lukewarm, will it really empower us to rejoice in our sufferings? I don't think so. And so church, let's cherish Christ's life so much that our love for him and our desire to see him honored, our desire to see him known in all the world could eclipse the earthly suffering that we face. Again, if you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever, I want to I say as pastor, we want you to be drawn to our church. We really do. Uh, we want you to be excited about coming here and, and eager to jump in and get involved. You may not be surprised to hear that. You might be surprised to hear this. It really matters to us why you're drawn in and why you're so excited and why you want to get involved. For example, please do not be drawn to our charming little barn church <laughs> or to my specific personality or communication style 
or to our style of worship music, the instruments we do use or the instruments we don't use. Friends, here's what we want you to be drawn to. Look around. Walk outside. Breathe in this beautiful summer air. The God who's created all of this was born a human being. He lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and he rose again, ascending to heaven where he now sits and reigns over all things in heaven and on earth. We want you to either be drawn to this surpassing treasure of his resurrected life or, you know, stop in, check a few things out, lose interest, and keep looking for something better. That would be preferable to us than the opposite, the, the, the alternative, the sort of nominally doing church life because it some ways serves some interest you have. The worst case scenario in my mind is that you would be drawn to redemption because of some trivial benefit that the church adds to your earthly life, including even some sense of community or entertainment or just even teaching for the sake of teaching. As great as these things may be, they will never empower us to endure suffering, much less to rejoice in it as if it is a grace from God. Pleasant, earthly, life-enhancing religion will never have this effect in our lives. Only treasuring and sharing in the upward life of Christ can do this. When his life supplants our life as the most important life. C.T. Studd was an English missionary to China, India, and Africa in the early 1900s. He's also a fairly well-known author, and in particular, he wrote this famous poem that some of you may recognize. It's entitled, Only One Life, and it is such a, a beautiful compliment to this, to this passage. So here are a few stanzas from this poem. He says, two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Here are the two lines. They're repeated throughout the poem. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from this world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. One more. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Churches, church, our lives, the breath we breathe, the thoughts we think, the bodies we have, our lives will not last. They will constantly disappoint us and leave us empty. Our lives will never empower us to endure suffering in the way Paul's talking here with joy. They can't. They can't. There is only one life that can do a thing like that, and it is the upward life of Christ. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for him will last. 